2 Samuel chapter 14. We are progressing through the life of David through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and we have progressed to chapter 14, where we learn of Absalom's return from exile. I'll be reading the entire chapter, preaching from the entire chapter, though I'll not be going verse by verse, but I will be going through many of the details uh, in the chapter. Once again, hear the very words of God. 2 Samuel chapter 14. So Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent it to Koah and brought forth from there a wise woman and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put these words in her mouth. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. Then the king said to her, What troubles you? And she answered, Indeed, I am a widow. My husband is dead. Now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole family has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, Deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. So they would extinguish my ember, that is left, and leave my husband neither name nor remnant on earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. So the king said, Whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, and do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Therefore the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak another word to my lord the king. And he said, Say on. So the woman said, Why then have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now therefore I have come to speak of of this thing to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid." And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his maidservant, for the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, The word of my lord the king will now be comforting, for as the angel of God, so is my lord the king in the discerning good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord the king speak. 
So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman answered and said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me and put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the king said to Joab, All right, I have granted this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Then Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house, but did not see the king's face. Now in all Israel there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head and 200 shekels, uh, weighed the, the hair of his head at 200 shekels according to the king's standard. To Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. And Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face. Therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. So he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, Look, I sent to you saying, Come here, so that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me see the king's face, but if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. So Joab went to the king and told him, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face, to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are of weak minds and uh, pitiful understanding. And so, Father, in this portion of your word, we ask for illumination. We pray that your spirit would tear the shackles Uh, from our eyes to unstop our ears that your spirit might goad us to love and good works and understanding this passage. We thank you, Father, that every word that you have recorded in the Bible is from your holy hands and that all good gifts and all good perfect gifts come from your holy hands. And so, Father, as we handle this word this morning, we pray that we would be faithful, that we would not turn aside to the right or to the left, but rather stay on this narrow path of instruction that you've given us, that we might honor you all the days of our lives until that day of redemption when our Savior returns and puts all things right. 
And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, this is a difficult passage for a a pastor to exegete. And I might actually say some things that may be a little out of the mainstream with regard to this passage, but I think are faithful to the passage nonetheless. Today's passage in 2 Samuel may seem to be an odd assortment of political maneuvering and and familial intrigue. Those Those would be correct assessments of this passage. Absalom, the crown prince of Israel since the death of Amnon, is in exile at Gesher for conspiring against and murdering Amnon, his older half-brother. While in exile, an unexpected ally, who is also a murderer, comes to aid Absalom in hopes of reestablishing the exiled prince back to the graces of his father, David. The murderer that has come to Absalom's aid is David's major general, Joab. Joab has hatched a complicated plan enlisting a bright but conniving woman from Tekoa to maneuver David into relenting from his anger toward Absalom. Once David's anger subsides, Absalom will be permitted to return to Jerusalem and presumably to David's palace. Though upon Absalom's return to Jerusalem, he is not allowed to return to a place of honor but must stay in his own house while the king resides in the palace. And this will take place for an additional two years. Absalom is incensed that the crown prince is not permitted to see the king and lashes out at Joab for fumbling the plan to restore him to the full graces of King David. To get Joab's attention, Absalom has Joab's barley field burned. When Joab inquires as to the reason for this destruction, Absalom retorts that it would have been better for him to remain in Gesher than to return to Jerusalem and not be able to dwell in the presence of the king. Joab intercedes for Absalom before David, and David receives Absalom with a kiss, and presumably a full pardon. So what lessons are we to glean from this political maneuvering and familial intrigue? First, it's glaringly obvious that David is not the man he once was. Not only has his acute sense of justice and equity been made impotent, his ability to discern deception has been lost, all of which he had in great measure before. We can attribute this to his own sins having been displayed before the kingdom and displayed before his house when the prophet Nathan confronts him with his sins. Therefore, the lesson regarding David is that one consequence of sin can be the rendering of even the repentant sinner callous toward righteousness. The second lesson is acutely obvious, and it is the consequence that sin and sinners around us are emboldened to continue in their sin when we are not champions of righteousness. And then the last lesson we learn is the same as last week's lesson. God's plans and purposes are never thwarted by sinful activities of men. He always accomplishes his holy will. And so with these three things in mind, let us consider the passage again. The first notion, sin renders even the repentant sinner callous toward righteousness is seen here in the life of David. 
As we saw last week, David's household is in shambles. There's murder, there's incest, adultery, lying, all, all sorts of sin are taking place in his household. His eldest son Amnon, the crown prince of Israel, is dead at the hand of his half-brother because of Amnon's sin with Tamar. Amnon's murder was a revenge killing for the sin of Am- for Amnon's sin committed against Tamar, and Absalom, the murderer, is now gone to Geshur, his grandfather's home, to be exiled from David. And David remains in Jerusalem lamenting his exile. Now, how is all this possible? How is it that David's house could have fallen so far so quickly? As we saw last week, our sins touch everyone around us. That was the lesson of last week. Our sins touch everyone around us. It's it's delusional to think that that is not the case. Our sins affect everyone around us, and such is the case here. Our sins are much like a cancer that grows unchecked. Once it has taken root, that root is hard to destroy and to pull up. Only an act of God can overturn the destructive force of sin. And it's in great measure in the life of David and his family here. In the case of David in this chapter, both his, his sins of omission and commission are coming back to haunt him. Well, what do I mean? His sins of omission and commission. Well, the sin of omission that David committed was to harbor the murderer Joab in his military ranks. You will remember Joab murdered Abner, the son of Ner, the major general to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, who had, was king over the ten tribes on the eastern side of the Jordan immediately after Saul's death. Abner was a righteous man, according to David, but he was killed by Joab. And David never held Joab accountable for this capital crime. It is likely that David was the only man who could have held Joab accountable, as David was the only man in authority over Joab. And yet, David doesn't do that. He sins by not requiring justice to be meted out in the case of Joab. The consequences of David's sin was not contained just there. That was David's sin of omission. But David's sin with Bathsheba and his subsequent murder of Uriah the Hittite, these are sins of commission. David chose to do these things of his own free will, to dishonor God and to sin against his brethren. God's curse on David's household because of the sins of commission that we find in 2 Samuel 12, read like this, when Nathan said in verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. That was David's curse. Though David repented of his sins, he immediately said, I have sinned against God. Though he repented of his sins, those who were close to him have not repented, And David has allowed those sins to be tolerated 
when he has had the authority and ability to enforce God's law. He hasn't enforced the sin. He never enforced the sin against Amnon's uh, adultery with Tamar. He never enforced the sin of of, uh, uh, Absalom's killing Amnon. He hasn't enforced the sin against Joab. And so all of these things are piling up in the household of David. In this passage, both Joab and Absalom have sinned grievously, and neither has been held accountable. Now both men will begin to conspire against David. And this brings us to our second lesson from the passage. Sinners are emboldened when justice is ignored. Sinners are emboldened when justice is ignored. Absalom has been exiled for three years in Geshur at his grandfather's home. The new crown prince of Israel, Absalom, a handsome man, as the passage described, is beyond the place of honor which is in Jerusalem. He seemingly has no hope of restoration. It could be that Joab is thinking if David dies while Absalom is in exile in Geshur, it could be that there, there would be a, uh, those who would support Absalom to be king and those who are, have supported his exile while with David would begin a civil war. It could be that Joab is trying to thwart the potential for civil war. We don't know that for sure. But Joab, the captain of David's army, is assessing the situation and he decides it's important for Absalom to be returned to Jerusalem as the crown prince. So he crafts an elaborate plan to maneuver David into forgiving Absalom and calling him back to the graces of the king. Joab recruits a woman from the town of Tekoa. Her name is not given, but she is identified with her city of residence, which is mentioned three times in the passage. I tried to do some word study on Tekoa to find out its its meaning and what significance it might have, and I, I didn't find much, so I have nothing to tell you on that. Suffice it to say, this woman is a good actress. She's a good actress. And she's careful and crafty when she puts uh, Joab's plan into into, uh, action. She comes to David, fainting the fact that she is a, a widow, that her husband is dead, her two sons have fought, one has killed the other, and now her son, who would carry on the name, the covenantal name of the family, is being threatened by other family members who are asking for his life because he took the life of another. She's brought into the presence of the king, claiming these things. And this woman lies to David, claiming her remaining son's life is in danger from those seeking justice for the slain son. She pleads with the king, saying, So they would extinguish extinguish my ember that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the earth. She is pleading to David, don't let our name be lost to history. Help me preserve the family name. Really? If you're David and you're sitting in this circumstance, your family name's already been dishonored by your son. Why would we want to preserve that? But David doesn't have that kind of discernment here. He first says, no one will harm you. He later says, no one will harm your son. 
and a hair of his head will not fall to the earth. And at that point, the woman from Tekoa, when asked by David, has Joab put you up to this? She relents and says yes. It's been a ruse, all to get a promise from David that this son would be preserved. And then she has the gall to tell him that you're the man who has a son who needs to be preserved, a name to be preserved in your household. Would David's name and his, his lineage be lost if Absalom were to die for his sins in judgment? No, David's got lots of sons. That's a ruse. It's a red herring. And yet, that is what Joab is trying to convince David would be the case through this woman from Tekoa. The entire scene is but a ruse because the woman of Tekoa has been employed by Joab to lie to the king. Once the king has agreed to protect the alleged widow's son from justice, the woman of Tekoa reveals that she's not a widow or a mother of a murderer, but that she is referring to Absalom, David's son. Having revealed the ruse, the woman of Tekoa is then confronted by the king with the question, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman of Tekoa admits the conspiracy, and David turns to Joab and tells him to return Absalom to Jerusalem. Now, if the, if the story ended there, we would see that David has been misled and yet has followed through on his word. We might actually come to David's defense a little bit. But that, the story doesn't end there. The murderer Joab, remember he murdered Abner, the murderer Joab has subverted justice in the life of Absalom, and for what reason? Well, we're not told that. We find out later in the story, in the next couple of chapters, we're going to learn how Joab and Absalom conspire against David. But at this point in time, we don't know what the motives of Joab are. Was his motivation to assuage his own guilt for Abner's murder, or was it to curry favor with Absalom, the next in line to the throne? Probably the latter. In either event, Joab's actions thwart justice, and both he, Joab, and Absalom are now emboldened to continue their conniving ways. David's failure to act with justice emboldens those sinners around him. He failed to act against Joab, and he failed to act against Absalom. And now these two men are conspiring against David. Consider how arrogant Absalom becomes. He returns to Jerusalem, but is not allowed before the face of David. He's not allowed to take up residence in the palace. He has to go to his own home. He spent three years in exile in Geshur, and now another two years outside the presence of the king. It's been five years since he's had the king's favor. Has his five years of disgrace made him humble and contrite for his sins? Hardly. He calls for Joab twice, and when Joab does not respond, what does Absalom do? He burns Joab's barley field. Now that may not seem like much, but when you're the king's captain and you have to feed your horses, what do you feed your horses with? Barley, amongst other things. 
The very thing that, get, that helps Joab have the strength that he has for the king has been burned to the ground by Absalom. Has Absalom shown any kind of contrition at all for his own sin? No. And it's been five years. And what does he do? He destroys something else. That's his response. If I can't have my way, I will destroy something else. That's where sin leads people. Destruction and death. That's the path that sin takes us on. Absalom has become entrenched in his destructive sin and shows no repentance. Joab then pleads for Absalom's restoration in the palace and David relents with a kiss for Absalom. This brings us to the last point. As you can see, David's house is in complete disarray. I mean, it's just a mess. And despite whatever efforts he's putting into this, he's not having much effect. It's going to get worse. It seems like it's as bad as it could be. It gets worse. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But as we saw last week, the sovereign hand of God is not stymied by the sinfulness of men. He works all things together for good to them who love God and are called according to his purposes. Though, as we shall see, Absalom and Joab will continue their conspiratorial ways leading to death. Yet God will raise up another heir to David's throne, whose reign will be remembered as the zenith of Israel's temporal greatness. And that is the reign of Solomon. Joab's, Joab's ruse with the woman of Tekoa places too much emphasis on Absalom. David's throne will not die if Absalom dies. David's throne will be preserved. Why? Because God had, had promised that to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And God will also keep his promise to the house of David that the sword will never depart from David's house. Now we know that from chapter 12 as a, as a condition of a curse, meaning that sword will will likely be used within your very own household. And it was. Amnon died at the, at the hand of Absalom. We're going to see more death come about as well. But there is another side to that very promise that I want to bring to our attention. The nature of that sword in the household of David is going to change. The nature of the sword will change. Jesus Christ, the heir to David's throne, brings a sword of redemption, which is the word of God. True justice has been meted out by the son of David, the Messiah of God, and is being meted out. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 through 39, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Does that sound familiar? Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross, does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The sword changes in the household of David when it gets to Christ 
That sword continues to divide families. It divides the sinners from those who are penitent. It divides the ones who are arrogant and haughty like Absalom to those who are meek and lowly, who humble themselves before God that he might lift them up out of the mire. This family was a mess. How could that possibly be fixed? Only by an act of God. Your families are no different. Your families are no different. I I look in the congregation here. I know many of your families. They're not, for the most part, a mess. But we're not far from it, are we? Because we're all sinners. Who can fix that mess? Only the one who carries the sword of the word of God. Christ the Savior. And it's his sword that divides the soul from the spirit. who, who, Who cuts away the things of evil and unrighteousness to preserve that which is righteous. That's the one, that's whose sword we need to embrace. Have you ever thought about embracing a sword? How do you do that without getting hurt? Well, guess what? That's God dividing us from our sin. When you embrace the word of God, your sins become evident and it's an opportunity for repentance. Brethren, for the murderer the conspirator, the adulterer, the liar and the thief, or the one who burns barley fields, there is but one sentence for sin, and that's a death sentence. Jesus calls us in Matthew chapter 10 to die to self that we might live in him. You must die, every one of you. And every one of you will die. Jesus calls to die with him on the cross that we might live with him in his resurrection. When we embrace the Savior, our sins are imputed to him and his death washes away those sins and his resurrection gives us newness of life. He died that our sins might be cleansed. He rose that we might be justified before the Father. Again, Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Forgiveness can only be found in the one who has paid with his life the consequences of our sins. Believe in the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, and the Bible says, you shall live. Let us pray.